Hello again to all of our great audience members who are returning for another episode of the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. If this is your first time listening in, thank you so much for joining us, and we hope that you find our discussions engaging and enlightening. I am Tim Horgan, and I'm the Executive Director of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire, and your host for this series. Before we jump into this discussion, I want to tell a quick small world story. When I first reached out to identify a speaker for the topic of the war in Ethiopia, today's speaker, Jason Mosley, was recommended to me for his work at Oxford University. Upon reaching out, I quickly found out that Jason had a strong connection to the Granite State, having lived here and then going on to graduate from the University of New Hampshire. It was amazing to hear his story of taking an interest in Africa, turning that into a Peace Corps experience, and then finding his way to one of the most prestigious universities in the world. It just goes to show that you never know where your global journey will take you. Whether you are just starting your global journey or are years into it, I hope today's episode will help you to better understand this challenging and complex conflict. A lot of the discussion around what's happening right now is a battle about you know when to start the clock on when did this problem really start. The problem that Jason Mosley, research associate at the University of Oxford, is alluding to is the conflict that is ongoing in Ethiopia. There's a long and complex history for this country, and deciphering how we got to where we are today is not easy. That is why we are taking a deep dive into the origins of the conflict so you can understand the challenges to resolving it. So yeah, it definitely goes back a ways. And it's important not to just look back to 2018 when this prime minister came in. There are other important milestones over the last couple of decades. But yes, so the the current political dispensation came with the overthrow of the previous government in 1991. It was a transition and they established the current architecture. And the parties to the conflict at the moment have their roots in the conflict that went from the 60s in Eritrea leading up to that point. And how did that come about? I mean, Ethiopia is an interesting country. It has its own long history, and that history is very political in terms of how it's told. So it is definitely a key element of Ethiopia's history and historiography that it was not colonized by Europeans. So it doesn't have an independence. There was an Italian colonial presence in the region. They certainly had a colony in Eritrea, which is part of the Eritrean nationalist background and part of how they differentiate themselves from Ethiopia. But other than an occupation in the mid to late 30s for five years, the Ethiopian state has been independent and they became a beacon of Pan-African liberation ideology during the phase of decolonization for that reason. And the imperial government under the monarchical system that they had up until the 70s played on that to bolster Ethiopia's position in national relations. Ethiopia was a founding member of the League of Nations and the United Nations. Its status within Africa 
is key to its position in international relations and in leveraging its position for the benefit of Ethiopian politics and the economy. But there's also the story that a lot of groups within Ethiopia would tell of internal colonialism or sort of Ethiopia as an empire that's built on a smaller group conquering the peripheries of its area to the borders of what is now Ethiopia, but those other areas being you know, independent peoples that became subjects of the empire. And to some degree, that's identity politics and those subdued nations, their histories are part of the liberation struggles that produced the anti-imperial protest movements and the resistance to the imperial government in the late 60s, early 70s, which was a moment of sort of global ferment and revolutionary politics, youth protest politics, and certainly the educated youth in Addis Ababa at the time, that all played into the downfall of the imperial regime. So, up until the revolution in 1974, Ethiopia was led by a monarchical crown, which conquered the local area and built up the state. After World War II, Italy lost control of their colony north of Ethiopia, and the Allies put that land under the protection of the Ethiopian king at the time, with the understanding that it would become an independent state 10 years later. In 1961, Ethiopia annexed the land to officially bring it under their control, which set off the land conflict that underpins part of the regional tensions we see today. In 1974, a group of low-level officers overthrew the monarch and set up a Marxist-Leninist state, which held control until they were overthrown by a coalition of actors in 1991. These included Eritrean independence fighters, which helped lead to their independence in 1993 from Ethiopia. So, as you can see, there's a lot going on in this region. So we've got Ethiopia under a federal system and an independent Eritrea. And the, the movements that led the main insurgencies against the government, the Eritrean rebels, are still in control of Eritrea. And the Tigrayan rebels formed an alliance with other identity-based liberation movements, which took over Ethiopia and established this constitution and set up the federal bureaucracy and the boundaries of the federal system. And when that happened, several things that contribute to the current conflict came into force. These ethno-linguistic-based administrative structures created boundaries for these regional states, the federal units, that don't look exactly like the imperial or the dictatorship era, the DERG, administrative boundaries. Those old boundaries have a kind of center-periphery structure where areas that are closer to the sort of cosmopolitan hub and the more populated, more connected areas then kind of shoot off. So if you look at an old map, you see the big cities where the regional governors would have been based and the area that they have responsibility over then shoots out towards the international borders, encapsulating a number of folks. In this federalist system, the borders of the 10 regions in the country tend to follow ethno-linguistic boundaries. However, as areas have become more diverse over the decades, it is harder to say that Tigrayans live here, Amara live here, Amoro live there. These federal regions have given a sense of autonomy to the regional governments, something that was not the case under the monarchy. The reason for this breakdown of the country comes from the independence movement and how each group had their own liberation movement that consolidated under the Tigrayan People's Liberation Front, the TPLF. There was an Amhara National Democratic Movement, 
an Aromo People's Democratic Organization, a Southern People's counterpart. You know, so every group got either an umbrella for the very small groups or a sort of titular, singular liberation movement, political organization. And those groups, really dominated by the TPLF, formed the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, which took control of Addis Ababa, set up an interim administration, which the TPLF leader, Melissa Nawe, chaired as president of the transition and set about establishing this new constitution in 1994, which created the federal system and the borders of the federal regions, put that to a referendum, and the first elections in 95. So by 1995, this new system is up and running, and the EPRDF is in control of all of the constituencies at the national level. It was an alliance of four parties, controlling Tigray, Amhara, Oromo, and the Southern Nations, Nationalities, and Peoples region. And then the other regions in the country were controlled by affiliated parties, but not full members, because the TPLF also viewed itself in the sort of Marxist-Leninist parlance, a, a vanguard party, which needed to bring the democratic culture and the political culture to a sufficient level of maturity before moving to you know, multi-party politics and all this mistakes that post-independence countries had made. Under the Ethiopian People's Revolutionary Democratic Front, the EPRDF, the leaders of Tigray held a disproportionate amount of power, which was wielded for the next 20 years as the main party in the country. For the most part, the EPRDF held all seats in parliament, huge majorities in the cities, and at most levels of government. It is important to note that there were a couple of major blips in this ironclad control of the state for this party. The EPRDF in 2005 had a much more competitive electoral process and lost many seats, and they lost all of the seats in the Addis Ababa City Council. Not all. They lost control of the city council which they weren't expecting. So there was a rollback and a repression. Opposition parties didn't help themselves by claiming that they had won the election outright, which they most likely had not. So they pushed very hard and lost badly. That allowed the EPRDF to really tighten up. However, in 2010, taking control of, I think, every, no, not every, there were two non-EPRDF MPs, I think, in that parliament. Melis Sinawi, the leader of the TPLF, died in 2012. Really, for the last 10 years, even before Meles passed away, the solidity of the grip of the PRDF over the economy through sort of state-led economic policies, certainly not communism, but not a orthodox IMF World Bank approach to neoliberal reforms and liberalization that you had seen forced on other countries in the 80s in the region. There were some challenges already emerging the first widespread protest movement against the EPRDF came in 2011. It was the first time you'd had this kind of really widespread protest, not just in Addis, against the EPRDF. Even the 2005 election protests were very much concentrated in, in the capital. So how did the TPLF come to dominate the ruling party for so long when their group made up about 7% of the total population? In the coalition, each party had a quarter of the votes in the executive committee and the ruling council of the coalition, despite their size. So that, that's where the TPLF's outside influence came from. But they only had a quarter, and they were able to dominate the coalition for decades against the other three quarters by sort of clever domination of that dynamic. The Tigrayan people are in control of the overall governing coalition in the 90s and 2000s. But as Jason mentioned, 
the sheen is kind of wearing off. We fast forward a few more years and more protests are breaking out that really begin to change things in the country. And in 2015, 16, there was major protests started, broke out late over the year from sort of October, November 2015 to the following October when they declared a state of emergency to get a handle on things. And these were widespread. They expanded outside of Oromia, Amhara region, other, other places. Although much of the protest was focused on respect for the letter of the law, the spirit of the law, which the government was very assiduous at creating legal justifications for repression under the EPRDF. But the Constitution's not necessarily bad on paper. It guarantees a lot of rights. And there had been a movement called Respect the Constitution, a sort of social media activist movement by bloggers and other and other young tech-savvy people in the run-up before the, the big protests of 2015-16. And this was a, a good way to understand people demanding their rights under the system as it existed. And that was coupled with a general sense that ethnic Tigrayans, because of the TPLF's dominance, were benefiting in outsize, especially to the proportion of the population. You often hear this get trotted out, they're 6% of the population. How can they be in control of everything? And there were attacks on ethnic Tigrayans. As these protests grow in strength and number, the EPDRF cracks down, with most reports indicating that over 500 people were killed by the government forces at these protests. In October of 2016, a state of emergency is declared, and many observers decry the blatant human rights abuses that occurred as the state prevented any dissent. This was in place for a total of 10 months before being lifted. After they released the state of emergency in 2017, the EPRDF started to undergo a series of reforms. All of its constituent parties went through an internal critique and started to change things. They started to release political prisoners in late 2017, early 2018. Abby's often, in journalistic shorthand, given credit for releasing political prisoners. Actually, the EPRDF started to release political prisoners, and many of the people that were released, that happened before Abby became chairman of the EPRDF and prime minister, but this was too slow. And they knew they needed a leadership reshuffle, but there wasn't consensus here, and the TPLF was quite concerned about its position. After having dominated the coalition for almost 30 years, it would be understandable that the Tigrayans were worried about losing influence. However, they had traditionally worked with the Amhara to ensure that they had the support necessary to ensure their leadership role. However, this time around in 2017, the Tigrayans... They were duped, or they were double-crossed, or actually they were cut out. Enough of the Amhara members of the executive committee supported Abiy that he was able to win the chairmanship and become prime minister. And it's interesting because he was not the leader of the OPDO at the time of the crisis. Actually, the OPDO leader, Lema Magursa, stepped down or swapped places with Abiy because Abiy was an MP. And Magursa was the leader of the Oromia regional administration, so that if they were able to pull this off, there would not be a technicality that you can't be prime minister if you're not an MP. Lema is, of course, now a political exile and is wondering if maybe that was a very bad decision in hindsight. When the TPLF was dramatically and sort of caught off guard, marginalized in this way, it would appear that part of its response was to push back very hard through the other levers at its disposal in terms of its influence in security architecture and 
in the political economy. You can see early on here how the seeds for the conflict have been growing for a long time. There was large resentment over the power that the Tigrayans held in government. The country was already factionalized on identities that were not Ethiopian first, and now the leaders from Tigray feel they have been cut out and marginalized. However, there was a lot of hope for the new administration at the start, as Abe spearheaded an effort to end the border conflict with Eritrea, invited exiles from the past 50 years back to the country, and was viewed as the person who could change things for the better. There was so much excitement that in 2019, Abe was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. Obviously, there have been some challenges to this award since it was bestowed. Imagine Gerald Ford just gets given the Nobel Peace Prize for like taking over. He got the Nobel Prize and the Nobel Prize, it's quite a red herring, right? Because it's, it is very attractive. It's, that's the red bit, I suppose. But it, it's meaningless. The substance of it is meaningless. The prize was because of the resolution of the conflict with Eritrea. Mandela and de Klerk received the Nobel Prize for making peace in South Africa together. Abbey received the Nobel Peace Prize for making peace with Eritrea. And Isaias, the president of Eritrea, did not co-receive this award. I think, without spending too much time on it, that this was a huge error on the part of the Nobel Peace Committee. Not because the normalization of relations between Ethiopia and Eritrea doesn't have huge significance. It, it very much does. And the conflict between Ethiopia and Eritrea was an important factor in regional security and to some degree in the challenges in regional security. So it potentially has very important implications for regional peace and stability. And certainly the approach under the EPRDF dominated by the TPLF, which was to isolate Eritrea, did not produce any significant results. And the feedback from TPLF-dominated EPRDF, their policy towards Eritrea was feeding back into the international system with negative results and no benefits for stability. So when Abiy comes in, he did not come in on day one in April 2018 saying, and my first order of business is to get up to Asmara and sort that out. So why did he do that? And I think that it was a combination of opportunity and pressures. And the pressures were coming from the TPLF. With those pressures coming from the TPLF, and a feeling within the Abbe inner circle that they were a threat, not only to his rule, but his life, an easy way to continue to reduce the power of the TPLF would be to make peace with the Eritrean government, who had a vested interest in seeing Tigray weakened as well, owing to the shared border conflict. When you think about things in that light, it's easier to see why making peace with Eritrea, with which the Tigray region shares a border, and the TPLF and the ruling party machine in Eritrea, the, the PFDJ, is the rebranded Eritrean People's Liberation Front. Isaias Afroworki led the EPLF and has been leading Eritrea since independence. They suspended the constitution process in the 90s when the war broke out with Ethiopia. So they not only have a long history, they have this war history after they became two separate governments, and this then subsequent 18 years of no war, no peace, and lots of Ethiopian-led pressure on the Eritrean government and economy. So Eritrean government was, of course, looking to marginalize the TPLF and ensure that they lost influence in Ethiopian politics. So this was a win for Abiy, being able to make that happen. Still, if you look at it in isolation, you could see the Nobel Committee's interest. Okay, well, look, this is peace, that's progress. But if you looked at what else was happening in Ethiopia at the time, 
there was already a lot of violence. And in simultaneous with Abby going abroad and inviting all of these exiled opposition politicians and anyone basically who had been marginalized in the, in the last, not just 20 years of EPRDF, but sort of 30 to 50 years of Ethiopian history since the 70s, you know, to come back and get stuck in, we're gonna fix Ethiopia up. There was a lot to be optimistic about, but he took the lid off many pressurized containers at the same time. And it was already, by the time he won the Peace Prize, materializing in instability in, in various forms. And by, you know, shortly after winning it, he had certainly, by the end of 2019, early 2020, things were pretty bad. And by mid-2020, with many opposition politicians in jail and war brewing with the TPLF in Tigray, it was clear that it was premature to think of him as a, as a political reformer. Now that we have the basis for how the fuse was primed, things get even murkier depending on which story you listen to and who's telling it. It is interesting, yet unsurprising, that everyone involved has their own view of what happened. So it's really important to understand that both the government and the TPLF have a preferred narrative of how the war broke out, and then to understand what those narratives are, and then what actually happened. And again, with all these things, like it's going to be a long time till we get the really detailed picture of exactly how this played out. But you could say the war between Abiy's government and the Tigrayan authorities started in November 2019, because that's when Abiy forced through the creation of the Prosperity Party out of the PRDF. And the TPLF declined, so they suddenly became the opposition party. EPRDF was dissolved subsequently, and so the TPLF had MPs still, but reflecting only their demographic weight. So they were a small opposition party in the national parliament. They still had control of their regional government, but this was a big setback. And as I was saying, like there are no heroes. Abby pressed the advantage and the TPLF escalated the conflict as well. Both sides drove this bus off a cliff. And the government, of course, was driving other uh, sidecars and things off the cliff, too, uh, in terms of its relations with other opposition parties and, and the determination to sort of dominate the post-electoral landscape with the Prosperity Party. And this is key. Abiy, most of his government, are EPRDF. So he came in, remarkably, one of the first things he did in his first addresses to parliament was talk about how much there was to atone for in the behavior of the government which is a remarkable thing for an MP who's part of the government that he's talking about to say. And in the subsequent three years, it has increasingly been the practice of the government to distill all of the mistakes of history into the TPLF. So we're not talking about the government I was part of. We're talking about the TPLF, which is before me and now me, as if I had nothing to do with the previous government. And my deputy prime minister here had nothing to do with that. And this guy and that guy and this MP and all these other people who are all here with the exact same electoral mandate as everybody else in the EPRDF and the TPLF from 2015. So he really needs these elections. And things have got very bad now. The run-up to November 2020, when the war broke out, was a story of increasing escalation. And not to forget, the government's been fighting an insurgency against Oromo militants who came back after 2018 at Abby's invitation but weren't happy with the way that the political landscape was developing and weren't confident that Oromo political parties were going to be able to compete fairly. And there are other dynamics around Oromo 
political party competition, even within groups that have the same name, didn't lay down their arms. So there was already an insurgency that was destabilizing, especially Western Oromia in Walaga and areas like that. On top of all these challenges, you had the COVID-19 pandemic, which threw all of our lives into chaos. But the important issue for Ethiopia, beyond what every other country was dealing with, was an upcoming election. It had already been postponed from its original date until August due to logistical challenges the government was encountering, but when the pandemic hit, they were postponed indefinitely. The TPLF saw this as a power grab by the government, but the upper house of parliament, which acts as a constitutional court, disagreed. This did not sit well with the TPLF leadership, as the upper house was full of loyalists to Abe, and so... They insisted on having their own elections. They wanted their own fresh mandate, and they went ahead and had an election in September. They changed the constitution of the region. There were a bunch of opposition parties. There was televised debates, and they had the election. They were getting ready to set up the new regional assembly, which had a quota for opposition, and the government cut off fiscal transfers. So the TPLF had refused to recognize the federal authorities because they behaved unconstitutionally, despite the House of Federation ruling about the mandate of the elections being extended. And this really escalated in September, October uh, to the beginning of November. When the war broke out, basically, I think what will end up being shown is that the TPLF recognized that troops were being moved from other parts of Ethiopia north because there was a huge concentration of National Defense Force assets and personnel in Tigray because of the border conflict with Eritrea. So there was still a heavy security presence there. And if you're going to have a conflict with your national government, you don't want to have the national army already in your territory. So they took control of those assets. And then this is where the competing narratives start to emerge. But government narrative is that the TPLF, out of nowhere, attacked their own army and killed all of these people and did this. And where did this come from? These guys are terrorists. And the TPLF on the other side turned this into sort of ethnic cleansing narrative. The problem is, if it had stopped in November, when the National Army, with the Eritrean Army, which also came in, and militia and paramilitary police forces from the Amhara region next door, swiftly occupied and displaced the TPLF administration, its fighters were chased into the hills, many senior TPLF figures were captured, and by the you know, early part of 2020, they were in the bush. And the government had declared the operations finished. But in the last couple of months, the TPLF, under the umbrella of a Tigray Defense Force organization, which includes non-TPLF fighters who have mobilized, people have gone to join the resistance to this occupation in the way that they've characterized it, that group has pushed back and effectively broken the back of the National Army deployments and come into Mekele, taking control of most of Tigray up to the Tekeze River, dividing most of Tigray, going to the Sudanese border. So at the moment, the national government had declared a unilateral ceasefire, having lost control of Tigray and withdrew. The TPLF pushed its advantage outside of the Tigray region state borders into Afar, for several reasons, and into Amhara region. So they seem to be wanting to create some buffer to prevent the movement of national troops from the south back up into Tigray. They might have appeared to want to try to disrupt the major routes into and out of Ethiopia's economy through Djibouti, which come through the Afar region, and to liberate western Tigray 
from the presence of the Amhara militia and the bureaucracy that had been put in place since November. They can't go on the roads through Tigray because the bridges over the Tekeze were destroyed by the retreating forces on their way out to prevent them from using those roads. And so the main road into Western Tigray now is through Amhara region. And it does look like, if you look at the Ethiopia map Twitter account, you can see they share updates of, you know, lots of pictures of, you know, captured this and that. But their main thing is that they maintain a map of where troops are supposedly located and where the battles have happened and who controls what territory or where it's contested. So it's kind of yellow for the national government, pink for Tigray, and sometimes orangey where they're competing. And it looks like they're going to not stop until they get to Western Tigray and, and keep control of that area. Because that is the boundaries of the Tigray administrative region. And because at the moment, the boundaries of the territory they control are the Amhara region, which they have an antagonistic relationship with at the moment. The Afar region, which is allied to the government and doesn't offer anything else. And Eritrea, which is a hostile foreign state with which they're still fighting. So they are looking for a border with Sudan. And you know, part of the reason that the map looks like it does is because Tigray, when they were carving up these administrative units, part of the objective was to reflect the control of that corridor to Sudan. There's a sort of hub at Humera, the tri-border area. And there's demographic factors, et cetera, et cetera. But during the conflict, the TPLF had taken control of these areas and they wanted to sort of reflect that in the administrative boundaries. It's become very charged who controlled those territories before the 1994 constitutional boundaries. But there are practical reasons as well. And it looks like things are about to escalate again. The escalation comes with the addition of new Eritrean forces entering the battle space after having left in June under pressure from foreign countries. Neither side seems ready or willing to relent in their campaigns, and you can see why based on the long history that has been brewing in this conflict. The seeming worst part of all of this is the humanitarian toll it has taken on the people living in the Tigray region, with over 2 million people being displaced by the war. Aid trucks and warehouses have been looted, stopped, and vital supplies have not made it to the people who are most at risk for famine. Aid workers have been attacked, and 23 have been killed to this point. Everyone wants to pass the blame on to someone else, but it seems little is being done to put a stop to it. I asked Jason to put this into context and why it should be important to the people of the U.S. and the world. We're pulling out of Afghanistan, and it's you know like that. Taliban is taking control. I think that that happening right now is timely, and it should be serving as a reminder of the limits of external force and external influence in some conflict situations. What can be done is very different from what should be done. The U.S. government has only got so many instruments at its disposal. And of course, in the last couple of years, has burnt a lot of its credibility with the Ethiopian government because of its posture in talks about the Nile and its fairly uncritical support of the Egyptian position on Nile discussions. And so, you know, that's, that's really limited its influence. And certainly by focusing on the atrocities and the human rights and famine that's now breaking out, famine conditions in Tigray, that's further limiting its influence with the government. And then where does that leave an actor like the U.S.? 
And I think many humanitarians would love to see some really forceful intervention to prevent the Ethiopian government from being able to conduct any operations or, you know, further atrocities to happen. But it's difficult to see how that would actually materialize. And then if you look at the instances where there has been very aggressive humanitarian intervention and the track record of that in humanitarian terms, that doesn't bode well either. So that makes the whole thing worse because it's already a terrible situation. But when you think what could be done, it doesn't add any light at the end of the tunnel. It just adds more tunnel, which is depressing. In an attempt to leave things on a more positive note, I do believe that Jason is right about the use of military force to combat a humanitarian crisis and that it does not have great track record. Hopefully, the lessons we take from Afghanistan and apply to situations like the one in Ethiopia is that the U.S. military is a hammer to be used on nails. The State Department, USAID, and humanitarian NGOs are screwdrivers which may take longer, but provide a more lasting solution. We need to do a better job of discerning when we are working with a nail or a screw and to ensure we use the right tool for the job. Moving away from the metaphor, providing humanitarian aid and ensuring it gets to the right people should be the focus of our efforts. And you, as an everyday citizen, have a real impact here. Talk with your elected officials about supporting aid work. Donate to legitimate aid organizations and tell them where you want your money to go. Keep pushing for our government to work constructively with others around the world and to use the proper pressure points to help make improvements. You may not feel it, but your voice does have power. Thank you all for listening, and I do hope that this has helped to bring some of the complexities of what is going on in Ethiopia to light. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider donating to the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire by clicking the donate button in the show's description. Also, subscribe now to make sure you are alerted when a new episode drops. Finally, leave us a comment to let us know what you think and any topics you would like us to explore further. We love to hear from you. Our intro music, as always, is Admin by A.A. Alto. Our interlude music is The Inner Conflict by The New Geometry. I... Tim Horgan, I'm your host, producer, audio technician, and everything else that a podcast needs to get to air. Thanks again for listening to The Global in the Granite State.